Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about poverty and trauma. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Paula Kalb. Paula uses she, her pronouns and is the Victim Compensation Specialist at the Victim Service Center. She is also starting her MSW program at UCF in August. She is focused on the intersectionality of poverty and trauma and is passionate about social justice. So Paula, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Emily, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast today. Absolutely. And I'm also really excited to uh, have two amazing individuals from UP to join us today. So starting off, I also have Pamela Rivera. So Pamela uses she, her pronouns and joined UP Orlando as programs director in 2021. She holds a master's degree in human services and is a certified child welfare case manager. Mrs. Rivera oversees crisis stabilization, emergency food pantry, workforce development and education initiatives. She has over 20 years of experience in human services while working with diverse populations. Her passions include helping clients overcome adversity through strength-based approaches that empower them to make positive life choices to reach their full potential. So Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here as well. And finally, we have Jay Silvagnoli. Jay uses she, her pronouns and joined United Against Poverty in August of 2019 as the intake coordinator. In 2021, she was promoted to crisis navigator and in 2022 uh, to her current position as crisis stabilization manager. She has an AS in information technology, a BS in health sciences, and is currently acquiring a master's degree in nonprofit management and public administration. Jay oversees the intake process and crisis navigation at the Life Enrichment Center of UAP by providing wraparound services and referrals for participants in need. So Jay, thank you as well for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have this really important discussion today. Just as a very brief introduction, 
Today, we are lucky enough to have United Against Poverty, as well as Paula from BSC to join us to talk about how poverty can not only impact a survivor of trauma, but also be a source of trauma, dispel some myths about poverty, the challenges people in poverty face, how resources like UP and UAP can help and ways we can all be better supporters. So with that, to start off, can you tell me a little bit about United Against Poverty and the work that you all do? Sure, um, United Against Poverty um, is also known as Up Orlando. And um, our mission is to help those um, clients or families that are struggling lift them out of poverty and get them to self-sufficiency. And we do that by providing a range of different services, like a holistic approach. Um, we have the crisis stabilization manager that can do case management, again, link them to outside resources. We have a workforce development specialist um, where we actually instruct on emotional intelligence because we know emotional intelligence is key, right, to understanding um, how to get along in the workplace, the workplace, help conflict resolution. And then we also help them link them um, to immediate job openings. Then we also have our uh, grocery center program, which is, um, and that is a free membership. And that also offers low cost groceries and they can come in and, and uh, purchase seven days a week if they, um, if they need to. And if they have an EBT card, they're more than welcome to come and use their card in our grocery center as well. And then we also have our education initiatives, which comes in different forms, um, different workshops. So we have a senior safety workshop coming up. Uh, then we're also registering for GED classes and courses, uh, the prep courses, again, helping them reestablish their educational goals and try and get them to where they need to be. Then we also have an emergency food pantry that we have the clients um, access it only once a year. Uh, and that's really because we don't want to create a dependency Right? We want to give them the tools to be able to be able to purchase uh, food via a new job or higher wages, whatever um, they need to get to that point of self-sufficiency. And um, Jay, I'll let you continue. Sure. Um, also in the Life Enrichment Center, what we focus on is helping participants that come and visit us with um, just the normal little things of life. For example, we have many uh, participants that need help with filling out food stamp applications or um, having to complete an unemployment application. Um, in addition, some don't have internet access at home, so they come here and we uh, let them utilize our computer lab, our phones. Sometimes we run into those individuals that don't have phone access, so we provide them with that as well. We also connect them with a whole bunch of resources, uh, either in-house or, or um, off-site. Uh, in-house, we have different providers that uh, come here on different dates. For example, Primary Care Access Network is here on certain days. Um, we also have uh, uh, the multicultural wellness um, individuals here as well. Um, we also, during a period, different periods of time when it's tax season, we have VITA. Um, so it's tax assistance for those individuals who just don't know how to do their taxes. So it's an array of different wraparound services that we provide. Um, we help faxing and making copies, you know, just those little things that some individuals are not able to do on their own. And everything here is at no cost. So, um, yeah. 
That's incredible. Thank you both so much for explaining that and all the amazing work that you all do. It's so, so many different facets that you're kind of supporting from, from education to job applications, to taxes, to all those different things. Um, I can only imagine that you're, you're coming at it from, of course, you know, a reactive approach in the sense that when people need help, but also from like a preventative approach as well, from what I'm hearing in the sense to kind of empower individuals um, and up makes a lot of sense as if like they're being lifted up into, you know, a thriving kind of atmosphere. Um, it sounds like these programs maybe stem from different, because no two cases are the same, no two clients are the same. Is that kind of how these programs come about where you're kind of hearing the needs of the community and then, oh, it sounds like we need kind of this resource in addition as you have grown as an organization? Uh, absolutely. During the pandemic, you know, the initial phases of the pandemic, we were one of the few agencies that was still open. And, you know, we had all those issues that were happening with people being let go from work and needing to file unemployment, um, you know, claims, not only claims, but applications. And we had to learn how to work with the new system that had been placed. So we had to learn all that. So yeah, the, a lot of the things that we do, it's it's uh, uh, by phases. We learn by phases. We learn it all and then we try and help the individuals. Same thing, the stimulus, when that was happening, we did not know anything about how do you, you know, file for a stimulus for certain individuals that don't have it, you know, we're not working. So we had to learn that too. Then there was the IDME um, uh, piece put in place and we had to learn how to do the whole IDME in order to help our individuals that come and visit us. So yes, it, it changes every day. Every day it's different. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for providing such detail about the amazing services that you provide for free to the community. And I know, Paolo, we didn't put this on the, the questions, but I know that you have some experience in the past working with this population. Do you want to talk like a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So um, I come from a background in working as a targeted case manager um, for Medicaid. And then I also worked with people experiencing homelessness. I work with an organization in um, Osceola County, which experiences a high volume of um, homelessness and there are very few resources and accessibility to programs. So um, I was an outreach specialist there, kind of going and talking to people and trying to connect them with the resources that we had um, available to us. Um, I also weekly helped out at the agency's food distribution program uh, during COVID. And then as a target case manager, that was a lot of providing um, referrals and resources and wraparound services, just making sure that everybody was getting connected. And because it was folks um, on Medicaid, it was people experiencing, you know, people experiencing poverty or who were diagnosed with um, a disability. And so they were living off of social security disability. And so um, it was a lot of like trying to be creative about what resources were out there, about what programs would kind of connect with um, self-sufficiency, but also meeting that immediate need that the client may have had. Um, so that was really 
really cool because I learned a lot of different resources in the community, but it was also really hard, especially when it came to like the medical requirements or the mental health requirements. Um, because oftentimes what I was seeing was people getting re-traumatized because they had so much stress and anxiety because they couldn't pay this medical bill, they couldn't pay that medical bill. Um, and it was just very overwhelming because not only were they dealing with the initial diagnosis, but then they were dealing with how do I pay for the treatment that I need for this diagnosis. Wow, thank you for shedding light on that. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of highlight to see why, you know, um, you know, this particular topic is passionate for you. So that's why I wanted to kind of give that little overview. So thank you. And I think that it's a good segue into kind of defining exactly what is poverty? What, it, what constitutes poverty? And then in the US, what is the poverty line in Orlando and things like that? I would um, define poverty as not being able to uh, meet your uh, your basic needs, food, it could be food, shelter, um, whatever it is that you need to get by um, and, and not is a consequence of, of poverty. Um, I know I was reading some statistics and just and specifically in Orlando, uh, the poverty rate in 2017 was actually 13.2%, which is still very high. However, 2022, we're looking at 19.1%, and that's a substantial jump. Um, so, and, you know, we're seeing it every day, more and more clients are coming in, the whole COVID thing, lack of employment, need higher wages, food scarcity, all those um, things, and we're seeing it in, in the data. Um, so that's why with our programs, we're hoping to kind of stifle that statistic and provide those wraparound services to get these clients out and out on their own. Wow, that's, that's so heartbreaking to hear, Pamela. Thanks for pulling those statistics for us. I think that it's really telling to see how um, different events that occur around us affect poverty and those who are facing poverty. Um, and I also wanted to ask, what are the different forms of poverty? You mentioned something about, you know, it, the def definition being around, you know, not being able to meet um, specific needs and means to survive. But are there different forms of it? Um, I would say there there are. I mean, for everybody, the situation is different. You know, you you have those individuals who are working, right? But they're not making enough money. They're just not making enough. You know, they 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 have a job. They work forty hours, but it's still not enough. Um, so they're those are the ones that are living paycheck to paycheck, right? Then we have the other ones who uh, are just completely homeless. They're living in shelters, they're living in the street, they're living in their cars. And it, it could be, you know, an individual or it could be an entire family. I mean, we see that a lot. Um, and then there's there are other individuals that um, just things happen all of a sudden that they weren't expecting. They were living a normal life. And then all of a sudden something happens. Um, their house, uh, you know, there's a fire and their house goes up in flames and, you know, they lost everything. Um, so yeah, I, I, you, you can look at so many different scenarios and, and we see those day by day. I'm just going to jump in there really fast and kind of elaborate on what you're saying, Jay, about the um, sometimes, you know, something just happens and that throws someone into poverty. Um, I see that a lot in my position as the victim compensation specialist. Um, 
sometimes people are, you know, survivors of a violent crime, be it sexual assault or gun violence or a hit and run accident. Um, and they have mountains of medical bills now that they have to pay, or they went into credit card debt in order to try to move to get away from the perpetrator. Um, or in domestic violence situations, you know, somebody leaves the DV situation and now um, they're, they're without another financial support. Um, so I think that's very important to kind of look at as well when we're looking at what influences poverty, because it's not just an individual's own um, decisions, which is what everybody seems to think about poverty being, but there are a lot of external factors as well. And um, there are a lot of things that are kind of outside of one's control, um, especially when we look at crime and survivors of crime, because there is this notion that um, if you've made it, you've made it. Nothing can, you know, hurt you or harm you or anything like that. But that's not always the case. Like you never know what's going to happen in life. And, um, you know, there have been people that I've worked with that have been in uh, comfortable upper middle class positions. And now they're struggling to make ends meet because they're paying rent all by themselves because they had to leave domestic violence situation. And this is why wraparound services are so important and awareness is so important because it doesn't impact just one type of person or one community. Um, it's it's uh, intersectional. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Paula, as well, because that is such a good um, reminder that how complicated this, you know, can be and how you're already kind of addressing some of the myths that we're going to get to about this as well. But I appreciate you bringing up, you know, survivors of abuse and trauma and how that can impact um, their financial means. Absolutely. Um, which I think I, I'd like to also pause here. And I, we've done this a lot where we've defined what trauma is, but it's very a difficult definition to grasp. So for the sake of this conversation, I wanted to you know, ask you all, how would you define trauma and poverty? Can poverty be traumatic? I think that trauma is, it's an emotional response to something that has happened in their life. It could be involving domestic violence. It could be um, a sexual assault. It could be anything that has affected them um, in their mental health. And I think poverty can um, also be part of that. You know, growing up and never having enough food on the table, that has to stay in your brain for a long time. Um, growing up in a domestic violence home, seeing the treatment of your mother or your father that sticks with you. Like they say, trauma is imprinted on your brain. It stays, it does not leave. Um, and that's why it's so critical to uh, address that trauma early on to so they don't repeat it, right? Going, growing up, they're having kids um, and, and all around, that's why we're able to, again, going back to the wraparound holistic approach to try and address those traumas. Yeah, just um, again, about the poverty being traumatic, if you're not able to kind of access care for things that you need or access resources, you're kind of left in a learned helplessness. And um, that can be really hard to then learn how to feel empowered and take control of situations because trauma can already leave you feeling helpless and hopeless. And then um, when you do try to access a resource like medical assistance and you're told that, well, you can't get that help because you can't afford it, that is 
re-traumatizing because it's putting you back in that position of um, the learned helplessness of like, there's nothing I can do to change this situation. Yeah, kind of like this vulnerability, right? And we talk a lot about survivors of trauma and how, um, you know, giving back, you know, power and empowerment is so integral or can be for healing. So I can see how different, you know, um, being denied different things and, and feeling that helplessness absolutely can can heighten that. And also like just thinking about, you know, the scientific background of, of responses to trauma, right? So trauma is our bodies trying to protect ourselves from threats, you know, going into a survival mode of fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn. And poverty seeming to be this, you know, kind of a survival mode for, for an individual. It, it makes sense that it would also release the common hormones that trauma does, right? Cortisol and all those things like that. So it, it does absolutely make sense that poverty itself can be traumatic. And then there could be certain triggers that come along with it as a person is trying to heal from it, trying to, you know, move forward. Um, so it makes a lot of sense how these two things kind of come together. Um, just a couple of other definitions that I wanted to kind of, uh, start off here what exactly do we mean by like child welfare what is child welfare um so child welfare is um it's how we in the system can protect children um by providing um the families or the parents an array of different services because we're looking for a behavior change a lot of our children that are sheltered or removed in place in foster care uh, the parent has abused, neglected, or abandoned them. And um, instead of just giving them a case plan and a checkoff, hey, you completed it, we've extended that to being able to see behavioral change. So if it was um, mom has bipolar or something like that, we want to make sure that you're going to the doctor, you're on your medications, we want to get recommendations to the doctor. It's not so much just a checkoff. We need to see a behavioral change so that we can feel comfortable with reunification and that child is going to be safe in that home. So it has been extended, um, but it is, it's that whole, again, back to the wraparound and holistic services, not for the child that's in care, but for the family as a whole. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, the whole unit kind of coming together um, to help support, absolutely. And then the, the last kind of thing that I wanted to discuss as far as defining is I've heard this term called the school to prison pipeline. So does anyone wanna kind of take a stab at what that can mean? Yeah, I can go ahead and um, touch base on that. And if anybody has anything to add, like please feel free to. But um, the school to prison pipeline is essentially this um, concept that um, young kids are, it's, it's uh, by third grade, uh, dependent on reading level. People can determine whether or not like the, for the chance of them going to prison, um, what that is going to be. So um, it's essentially this concept that um, in some situations, because of lack of access, lack of education, lack of um, social support, lack of connections, lack of mental health access, um, school-aged children can end up in prison, uh, whether that's in two years, three years, five years, 10 years. Uh, kind of varies depending on the situation, but it's this whole concept that there's a direct connection between low, I, I hate the term low performing students because that's kind of like um, 
locking them in, but there's a correlation between students that are struggling in school and don't have support or access to care, um, or maybe coming from um, stressful home situations that is impacting their, not just academic performance, but their behavior as well in school. Um, you know, there is a correlation to an expectation to end up in, within the prison system, uh, whether as a juvenile offender or an adult offender. Um, so it's pretty important and pretty um, sad because a lot of that is influenced by poverty. Because again, if you're not able to access resources or support um, or even good nutrition, because studies are showing that nutrition impacts brain development, which impacts responses in stressful situations, which impacts criminal behavior, um, you know, that we're, we're seeing this impact that poverty can have on someone's life trajectory. Thank you so much, Paula. Again, kind of seeing how um, this system is really complicated and can be impactful from all of these different angles. And I think now I'd like to kind of bust some myths because I think there's a lot of myths that surround or misconceptions that surround poverty in general and how we view it as a society, as the world. Um, so what are some myths that you want to debunk here? I have some kind of listed when we were planning this podcast. And the per first one I kind of have is poverty only happens to certain kinds of people. So how would you address that myth? So like I was saying before, it, it can happen to anyone. It just depends on life situations. Um, you know, it, it, it can happen to anyone. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I think that that's super important. And I know that we kind of already addressed it, right, where there's kind of this myth that um, essentially, you know, some people are protected from it or not. And it seems like that isn't the case. It could affect anyone at any time in their life. There could be certain life circumstances. And now the person is uh, in a situation that uh, they need some assistance with. Um, so I appreciate that. Any other myths that you want to kind of address? I think as well the myth that um, if someone is experiencing homelessness, they'll have instant access to housing. Um, this kind of perception that if you are poor or um, you don't have access to resources, things will just magically be handed to you. Um, that's not true at all. The wait lists are eternal. Um, and there are a lot of documents and proof and support, uh, like supporting situations that need to happen. So for example, in my experience with working with people for homelessness, experiencing homelessness, there's something called permanent supportive housing, which um, the wait list for that could be years long. And you had to prove that you had a long-term disability and you had to prove that you were experiencing homelessness for a year or more. Um, and breaks without breaks in homelessness as well. Um, and breaks in homelessness could be defined as spending a week or more under a roof. Um, so if the person was in a hospital um, for over seven days, then they weren't experiencing homelessness, even though they went right back to the streets or the camp. Um, if somebody was in prison for seven days or more, that also counted as a break in homelessness. 
Um, or even if somebody then got lucky and was able to stay in a hotel or have some type of shelter for seven days or more, that counted as a break in homelessness. And um, that made them all of a sudden ineligible for this type of service. And even with the permanent supportive housing, they still had to pay 30% of the rent. So for a lot of people who were able to get into this program, they then had to find a way to come up with some form of money. It wasn't just a handout. It wasn't just free. Um, it wasn't like they weren't working for it or trying for it or anything, which are a lot of myths kind of surrounding any type of government assistance. Um, these are still people who had pretty disabling conditions who then had to find a way to still pay that 30%, even though it was a reduced fee, they still had to pay something. Um, and so that that also was a big factor too. Um, and then as well, when we're looking at Section 8, because a big thing that I was doing with um, my work as a targeted case manager was helping people apply for Section 8 housing, that wait list was also really, really long. And there was no guarantee that you would get the housing voucher or you would be admitted to public housing, um, to the public housing authority. And even if you were, there was, it was still dangerous. And there were some people who were survivors of crime who had a lot of trauma, who were concerned about um, moving into an apartment complex because their apartment had been robbed the last time or an intruder had broken in and um, hurt them, assaulted them in some shape, form or fashion. So um, there's no kind of like guarantee of protection when you're applying for those types of programs. And um, that can be really scary for some people. Would you agree, Pamela and Jay, uh, as far as this kind of misconception that um, they'll just immediately be able to find housing? Absolutely. Um, we have uh, on site, we have a coordinated entry system who comes here on Fridays and they're here from 1.30 to 4. And we see individuals that come in and all they're doing is they're having an assessment first. And that assessment, what it does, it, it triggers if they are going to be able to receive some type of assistance in the future. So we do see a lot of individuals that come in and they're thinking, oh, okay, I'm here, I'm going to talk to somebody and I'm going to get housing tonight. And that is not the case. It's just not the case. Um, it, it's discouraging uh, to see as, as they leave and um, are not able to get that type of housing or that type of assistance, excuse me. And um, yeah, we do see it. So everything that Paola said, I, I, I agree with 100%. We, we do see that. And the other thing that I wanted to bring to the attention is that those that are being helped, right, when they get a case manager assigned to them, they, most of the time, they go into a temporary type of um, housing situation. Um, it could be at a hotel, you know, most, most of the times it's at a hotel and even those hotels are not safe. Um, we've had individuals, clients that have reached that point. Okay. I'm, I'm in a hotel. Now my next point is trying to get into some type of apartment or home or something like that. But they tell us, you know, it's scary. I'm in this hotel and there's drugs going around um there there are shootings there you know so it's still a, it's not a safe environment 
to them. So that, that's been my experience with clients that come through. I appreciate you highlighting that, Jay. I think it's important that we can kind of see what a situation realistically can look like for these clients and for individuals that are facing this. And, you know, we talk all the time about how healing from trauma, a sense of safety is integral to start that. And the fact that we're hearing that that can take a long time before an individual is even in a space to feel safe, um, I think is really telling and really important to highlight. I know that we had another myth and we kind of busted already in Orlando as far as, you know, the poverty line going up to 19% of individuals in Orlando facing poverty. But I think there's a, there's a myth that it's not a common thing, right? Especially in a, you know, first world country, right? So what would you say to someone who says, oh, you know, poverty is, is important to talk about, but not a lot of people, you know, experience poverty. What would you say to them? I think just bringing up that statistic of the 19.1%, that right there is shocking. Um, I also would probably get a little testy um, and talk to them about how like, um, it's, it's not fair to say that because even if it is impact, it, it doesn't matter like how many people, it does matter because it's so many people, but even if it was per impacting 5%, that's still 5% of the population that is suffering tremendously. Um, And it's, you know, uh, a lot of people say that you can measure, I don't remember what person it was who said the quote exactly, but you can tell a lot about a society, not how they treat their wealthy, but how they treat those in need. Um, And so even if it's, it's 19.1%, which is horrible, that's really telling, that's a crazy high number. Um, But even if it was like, three or five percent, that's still three or five percent of the population that need support, that need help, that are lacking in some shape, form, or fashion. And um, like being in a first world country like you're talking about, Emily, that doesn't just instantly mean that we don't have any types of problems. Absolutely. I really appreciate that, Paula. You're absolutely right. And and, you know, thinking of the, that 19.1%, again, it's like, that's one in five. That's one in five individuals in Orlando that are technically below the poverty line, which I think is just um, mind-blowing, to be honest. And just, to, um, just to piggyback on um, that, that statement, um, I wanted to talk about another myth about how some people will just kind of assume that it's the person's fault for being in poverty. Uh, I think that is huge, um, you know, and these these types of myths can be really dangerous and because it's spread, right? It can be spread like, like, a, like a toxin or, or a poison. And um, it's important for us as service providers to come and see them at a different angle. So um, being trauma-informed, it's no longer, you know, what happened, um, why are you like this? It's now, well, what happened to you? So when I hear about people, oh, they're an alcoholic, they're in poverty, it's their own fault. Okay, have you had a discussion with them? Do you know the root cause? Do you have a family history? Um, have you done anything? What, what, just because they're, you know, doing this or that. So that can kind of get under my skin because they're not looking at it through a tra- trauma lens. And I get it, not all of us are trauma informed or, you know, have that type of education. But 
still, why would we not try and help them or support them and get them to where they need to be? And so that's why I feel the last that I'm working with uh, up Orlando, because it's those types of clients that we can really um, help them make a transformation and get them to where they need to go. Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up, Pamela. I think, you know, whenever we talk about any kind of trauma, there can be a sense of victim blaming that comes with it. Just like survivors of sexual violence, we hear all the time, like, well, what were you wearing? It's almost like these two myths kind of, you know, playing off of each other, the sense that only certain individuals experience poverty, that it doesn't affect everyone. And so people almost blame them for, you know, being in the situation that they're in because, oh, well, if I don't do that, then I'm protected from experiencing this, um, which is just not the case, right? Um, with that, I think that there can also be a myth and we kind of talked about it a little bit as far as there's some individuals that are working and they are still experiencing poverty. So what would you say to someone that's like, oh, well, if they could just get a job, they would be fine. They're, they're just not trying hard enough. Um, I would say to those individuals, you know, sometimes a person does not have the, let's say the, the education, right, to get a better job. Um, sometimes they don't have transportation to get to a better job. Um, and I think that's where we come into play uh, with our success training employment program. We try and um, assist those participants in learning you know, what, how to obtain a job that's going to benefit them and help them become self-sufficient. You know, our program is one month long. We go through emotional intelligence, we go through financial planning, we go through, you know, actually uh, teaching them how to do an interview, well, we do mock interviews is what they're called. Um, we also connect them with different partners that are looking for employees, people to, to employ. And then uh, once we get those individuals employed, then we have a success coach that stays with that person in order to empower them and help them. And that success coach is with them up to three years. So we help in, in that manner. Um, the other things that we do is, for example, you know, we have um, the individuals that come in and they are ready to work. They have those tools, they have that education, but they're just down on their luck. They have given up. They say, I, you know, I, I don't know what else to do. I don't have a good job. Um, you know, I'm making minimum wage. So those individuals, same thing. We have our rapid um, employment program where we connect them with our work for, work, workforce development specialist in order for him to uh, help them find the right type of job. So yes, even though there are a lot of people are working, but they're still working paycheck to paycheck. So programs like ours try to get them out of that paycheck to paycheck in order to be able to become self-sufficient and, you know, have a prosperous life. That's, that's the key. That's why we're here. I love hearing about how there's that coach three years later as well to kind of help with, um, you know, thriving even beyond the immediate kind of crisis, right? 
um, that's, that's probably really integral to getting this person into a stable life full of peace and prosperity. Right. Um, so love hearing about that. I think that there, you know, as we were talking about different systems that help individuals, there can also be this fear or, um, idea or myth that people abuse the system. And we're already talking a little bit about all the barriers that people are facing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those later on in detail. But um, have you come across this myth that people abuse uh, welfare systems and and other social systems that help uh, support individuals experiencing poverty and, and not meeting their needs? I think there has been. Um... And that's just, and I, and I go back to another type of poverty, which is generational. It's what's learned at home, right? They grew up on government assistance. This is, this is what I did. This is how you get by. These are all the shortcuts. And it keeps them right there at that poverty level so they can get the Medicaid, so they can get the food stamps, so they can get this and get that. Um, so I think in that type of situation, they are abusing it. Um, but that's where we like to come in and like, there's so much more, let's get you to self-sufficiency. You don't need to depend on the government. It just kind of opens you up to even more um, goals that you want to make. If we can get you the educational training, you know, then you can buy as much food as you want to, right? Cause your income's going to go up. And, and again, wrapping that up with um, a piece of mental health, because we know mental health is a, is a big chunk of that as well. So I think we do see some of it. Um, and it's just unfortunate, but the system is so, so big and um, we, we can't, we, it, it'd be impossible for us to pick and choose or, you know, to find out who's abusing it or whatnot. Because some of them really actually do need that crutch for now to get them to the next, to the next stop or next point. Absolutely. And just to elaborate a little bit, you know, um, a lot of people believe that food stamps and um, unemployment and all that is there for the long term. And we try and teach them, no, this is temporary. This is just a temporary solution. Um, Then we run into individuals that say to us uh, things like, well, you know, this is all I've known, like Pamela just mentioned, this is all I've known. And I know I won't be able to go to school and I know I won't be able to get a degree. And that's where we sit down with them and say to them, well, okay, there are other types of assistance that can help you. For example, I run into clients all the time that have no idea what FOSFA is and don't realize that they may qualify for that help in order to be able to get um, a degree, you know, and utilize that degree to once again, become self-sufficient to better themselves. So there, there's, there's, you know, the, the myths that individuals that are not in poverty know of, and then there's the myths of people that are in poverty that also know of, and they depend on that. They, they think it's that way. And again, we try and do our due diligence in order to teach both sides. No, 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 that, you know, um, that's a myth and this is how we can help, or that's a myth and this is how you can help. Because at the same time, those individuals, I welcome anybody and everybody that think that poverty is a myth to come and, you know, spend, spend a couple of days with us, volunteer and just see what we're seeing because, um, 
I think that's the only way that everybody's going to realize what's really going on. Absolutely. I think that it's super what you're talking about as far as these myths being important to debunk and how critical they, how dangerous they can be, not only for us as a society looking in, but also people experiencing poverty can also have these like internalized myths, right? Kind of this lack of hope that, you know, well, this is how it's always going to be, um, you know, and, and things like that. So I think um, I really appreciate you bringing up this idea that the myths can not only be dangerous in that sense, but also in your own internal monologue as you're facing these things. Um, and I wanted to also talk a little bit about some risk factors as far as what are some, you know, characteristics or, or any kind of anything that can put someone at risk that may be more likely to experience poverty. I would say mental health, definitely your family history, if you have disabilities, educational access to resources. I think um, if you don't have those adequately, you can um, also uh, fall to poverty and it can be situational again, like Jay said, you have everything going for you, you have this great nine to five job and boom, something happens or COVID happened, right? And then you're out of a job and then you're calling us. So um, I think those types of risk factors are uh, very common. Absolutely. And Emily mentioned like mental health and um, ability, like that all ties into intersectionality. And intersectionality is kind of like the way that the identities that you hold play into each other. And so we can see it as well with um, like ethnic and racial minorities. Um, that can be a, I, I don't want to say like a risk, risk factor, but that can intersect with poverty because of the history that this country has and how we have systemically tried to marginalize certain groups um, with policies and that then leads into generational poverty which leads to the school to prison pipeline which creates this whole cycle of keeping people kind of trapped in poverty trapped in certain situations and um, obviously that's not to say that happens to everybody but there is like uh, research shows that there is, you know, significance to this concept of intersectionality that your identity is going to um, be, you know, the identity that you hold the whatever that may be, whether that is that you are um, disabled and so you're on social security a fixed income so you can't get a job so you only have access to x amount of funds whether that is um you know you have a felony conviction so there are only certain jobs that you can apply for and um there's only certain housing that you can apply for and you know that intersects with poverty um, mental health trauma, you know, this is what we've been talking about. You may have been traumatized from a different situation and then you feel hopeless and helpless and like, uh, and unsafe and as though you're never going to escape from certain situations. Um, intersectionality in the sense as well as if you've been victimized, um, you know, that plays a role too, whether you have um, experience domestic violence. And obviously we've seen that women are at higher risk of experiencing domestic violence than men. And so that, you know, your gender identity can hold 
intersectionality with um, poverty, as can who who you love, like uh, the LGBT plus community, or whether you're transgender or not. All of these things play a huge role. And until society kind of becomes more open-minded and realizes how all these things kind of play together and influence each other, we are going to continue to see a lot of risk factors that may or may not be associated with one group and another group. And that's really unfair and that's really harmful, um, which is why it's so important to have resources like United Against Poverty that kind of have wraparound services for everyone and kind of touch base on all of these different things. Like, well, how do you get access to um, resources, how do you get job development, how can you get safe housing, and important things like the Victim Service Center, like how can you move towards healing, what um, options are there available to you as you move through your healing journey, so that we can kind of touch upon a lot of different things, not just the presenting problem. Sorry, that was a little bit of a soapbox, so please feel free to jump in. No, I think that was perfect. I'm glad you brought up um, the LGBTQ plus community. That was something I was going to hopefully touch on as well, as far as I know that Zebra Coalition here in Orlando specifically works for, uh, works with, I should say, uh, young adults and youth that are in the LGBTQ plus community because of their identity, they are more, they may experience being kicked out of their homes or things like that. So those just kind of highlighting how there can be different risk factors. And I'm sure there can be, you know, external risk factors as well. I'm hearing that Orlando is going to become or is one of the most unaffordable places to live because of the spikes of rental, um, you know, uh, rental, prices, uh, rents, and things like that. So again, there's so many different environmental factors like COVID and events. And we also experience a lot of um, natural disasters here in Orlando. Um, that can also be a risk factor, I think, as well. Um, but so I appreciate you bringing into that intersectionality and also the generational aspect to it that you brought up, Pamela, I think is also really important to bring up too. Um, I know we talked a little bit about how safety uh, is, is a big integral part to this and how there can be a lack of safety when individuals are looking for housing and shelter. Um, anything else you want to bring up as far as how poverty may put people more at risk for violence, including domestic and sexual violence? Sometimes people have to live with their perpetrator because they can't afford to live on their own. Um, sometimes somebody's citizenship status makes them have to continue to live with their perpetrator because um, they're not going to be able to access other types of support, financial support, because they don't qualify. Um, you know, it's it, if you don't have access to finances, give us a lot of freedom. And that's something that we don't really talk about as much, um, not just freedom to like buy an Xbox or whatever, but freedom to make your own decisions and freedom to live life the way that you want. And so um, if you're kind of beholden to somebody else for your finances, that puts you at very high risk for violence. I agree. And then um, depends on also what, you, what you're making, what you can afford. Then you end up living in a um, an apartment complex or a neighborhood that is unsafe, but this is what I can afford, right? And then your kids could be at risk for 
issues. You may not be in the best school district, so it could be an issue with the educational. I know I had a family and um, I would only go see her at this apartment complex during the day. She even advised only come during the day. And so I asked her about that and she's like, cause it's not safe. After five o'clock, I do not leave my apartment. Um, I have the kids inside and um, we were working on trying to get her another, you know, move to another complex where she feels more comfortable. I'm like she can't even walk outside and walk her kids. So that, that spoke, that's huge to me. And, and then we're leaving these children in this environment where they're scared, um, you know, and they're supposed to look up to mom for protection and she's doing what she can do. But again, it falls down to the poverty. So happens. Thank you for sharing that specific case study there, Pamela. I think that that just shed some light on how real that these situations can be um, as far as violence and experiencing it. And um, we talk a lot in our healthy relationships training about, you know, reasons why people may stay in domestic violence situations. Um, I also know that there are individuals um, that are unable to get a job because of uh, the the abuser does not allow them to. Um, maybe they take away certain uh, documents that are important for employment or, or anything like that. Um, you know, take away their transportation, anything like that. Um, so it can be very, very complicated. And, and it's, I think it's super important to kind of highlight that that very real experience that people can be facing. We talked about some barriers already. Any other barriers that you'd like to bring up when it comes to being financially stable and safe that your clients that you've seen um, have experienced? Well, yes, with the with the rent increase right now that everyone is going through, not only people you know in poverty, but everybody else. Um, that's a big barrier and it does not seem like it's um, <laughs> it's going to improve anytime soon. So we are going to be seeing more and more individuals. Uh, we had a program for a period of time where we were assisting individuals with rental assistance. And then as you all know, also the state was providing uh, through our Florida and initially it started through the city and then the county and then it merged into our Florida. And, but that program is, is, has also uh, subsided. So I believe it was as of um, May 12, I think is when it, it stopped. And so right now we're gonna see a new um, uh, amount of individuals who are gonna be in the same, uh, in the same boat right now. So, yeah. Uh, and then again, you know, you have to think about those who, you have to travel from point A to point B, you know, transportation wise, um, gas prices are super, super high right now. So, you know, all those little things, food, food prices are, are up, right? So when you put all of those together, that creates a situation where individuals start going little by little into that paycheck to paycheck that, that, you know, uh, reaching that federal poverty line. So uh, I, I would consider um, those some of the risk factors as well. Yeah, those are all such great points, Jay. Thanks for bringing that up as far as how everything is kind of increasing. And then also we're seeing um, there's, I feel like there's this idea or at least the narratives I'm hearing 
are oh, there's jobs out there. Why aren't people getting them? You know, because as we kind of move into a new phase of the pandemic, I should say, um, you know, there's a lot of lack of staff, right? But we have to consider the high gas prices going up can be a factor as far as being able to, you know, uh, reliably transport oneself to work and back and things like that. So yeah, I appreciate you highlighting some barriers. I know that there are certain other barriers like criminal background and, and other things that can um, become barriers for individuals seeking. Um, and we've, we've also talked touched on other ones as well. Um, I, I wanted to ask as far as UP um, and United Against Poverty, right? Um, where do you actually try to start to help your clients um, thrive? Well, initially, when they come to our center, um, they come in and complete some intake paperwork, just some general information, what brings you here today. And then they'll actually meet with the crisis navigator or Jay, the crisis stabilization manager. And that's where they go over like a self-sufficiency matrix. Let's talk about um, their priorities, your needs. But then a big thing is we try and come around on a strength-based approach. Um, you know, tell me some strengths. What, you know, and some majority of the time it's like, oh, I don't have any strengths. I was like, yes, everyone has strengths. You actually coming through those doors and trying to get help for yourself, that's a huge strength. And they don't think of it like that. So you always have to like flip it around so they can kind of see, aha moment, yes, I do have strengths after all. So with that knowledge, we kind of try and create a service plan. Um, and it could be for 30, 60, 90 days. And it's building on those strengths and barriers. For example, we'll ask them, tell me a time when things are really good. Like, what does that look like? You know, oh, I had my own house, or I had my apartment, I was working at this job and all this stuff. So, so you did it once before, right? So we can do it again. We just have to kind of relearn some things maybe. It's a different environment, it's a different, different economic picture right now. Um, so just encompassing everything that's happened to them in the past, flipping it and trying to um, make it more strength-based approach. I love that, I love you hearing you talk about that strengths-based approach. I think that it's just really telling how individuals who are coming in from maybe a, a feeling of hopelessness and, and despair um, may not even see their own strengths within themselves, but you know, places like UP and the VSC being able to kind of reframe that for them so that they can start seeing, oh no, I do have these strengths that can help me and empower them and things like that. So love, love that you brought that up. Um, what do you think societal changes uh, that can be made? Do you think that could actually help? What are some things that society can do to better make these environments where individuals can thrive and feel safe financially um, in, in our society? I think one of the first things can be um, a little bit open-minded about poverty and what it means and um, not have so much of like a punishment perspective and have more of a trauma-informed perspective. Um, because once you're able to switch the mindset, then people may be more, not may, people will be more open-minded to some of these evidence-based practices and solutions that um, are available in other areas, are available in other countries that have been proven to work. Um, so if we stop kind of punishing people for things that may be out of their control, then um, 
we may be able to start to have a society that's a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more understanding, and um, a little bit more supportive for each other. Um, so that that could look like um, having a little bit more compassion for someone who may have a substance use um, disorder. Um, and instead of punishing them and putting them in prison for years, um, you know, helping them get mental health resources so that they can become a contributing member of society, so that they can learn these um, important social cues, social skills, and be able to uh, participate in the workforce. Um, having a little bit com more compassion for the mom with five kids who may be living in a one bedroom apartment and instead of asking her like what are you doing wrong kind of ask her well what do you need what supports are are you like in need of and um uh, honestly like with united against poverty helping create a case plan and um find a higher paying job um and that kind of ties into as well as uh being more not compassionate um what's the word i'm looking for respectful of um people's employment um, and not so much being disrespectful towards the food service industry or the um, service industry in general because a lot of people that is their best choice of work and um, paying higher wages so that people can afford to live on the paycheck of one job and not living paycheck to paycheck being able to afford it and that comes from respecting that type of employment and respecting that type of industry and um, seeing its value in society. Um, I, I agree. And just to piggyback off of Paola when she brought up the, um, the criminal system, you know, we need to reform. Um, a lot of our criminals, they go to jail and they have mental health issues. That's the reason they rob. That's the reason they did this. They, they don't look, again, trying to find that root cause because they're not trauma-informed. Oh, just throw them in jail. But the other piece is when they get out of jail, right? Mm -hmm. um, Upper Lando has partnered with a um, with Department of Corrections in a specific um, arena. And so what we're going to be doing is trying to implement a re-entry program. So as soon as they, as soon as they know a discharge date, they are going to be contacting us coming in for services, again, literally like from head to toe, a holistic approach. Okay, you need housing, employment, you know, they're pretty much starting over. And we feel like if that that's a huge service gap. Like we have to get them there at that immediate juncture because if we don't and there's no services for them, they're gonna go back to what they know what to do, right? Our the recidivism rate is 80%. So, and that's extremely too high that they're going back in because they don't know the skills, they just give up. You know, this is what I need, this is what I've learned to do. This is what I know how to do. I'm good at it sometimes, but they're just gonna go back to what feels normal to them. So that's why with App, we wanna be able to offer those immediate services and linkages to get them on the road. To piggyback now on what Pamela said, um, I think employers need to um, try and help those those offenders um, where they take into consideration, okay, yes, this person it, you know, did this, uh, they've served their time, so let's go ahead now and give them the opportunities. Now, there are employers that do, but I think it's it's a minimal amount 
um, if we could have more employers that could help those individuals, then we won't see that recidivism that Pamela was talking about. Um, you know, again, that that is another barrier. You know, people then go back into the same thing all over again, and and that includes poverty once again. But then also as well, like housing and rent. A lot of people who come out of um, jail, prison, are not able to live on their own because they don't have any income. So they live in with family who that's against their lease. The landlord gets the whole family out. Now everybody's being punished. And if the what I don't understand is if the purpose of jail, prison, or correction system is for that individual to pay their debt to society, why are they still being punished with poverty when they come out? And why is poverty considered an adequate punishment for life situations? Yeah, it's just, it's not giving people the tools to succeed. It's not giving them a chance. And that's why I love hearing this partnership that you're, you know, um, that UP is having with different community partners that you brought up, Pamela, because we were talking a lot about wraparound services. And essentially, there's a lot of different needs to be met for someone to thrive. All these different angles, right? Poverty comes in a lot of different ways. And so really community partnerships that are coming together to help individuals um, be lifted up, right? I think that community partnerships are super integral. So um, for individuals to thrive in our community and beyond. So with that, I think that that's a great place to kind of sign off. But before I do, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up um, that we may not have mentioned? I would like to mention just one thing, because you were talking about partnerships, and just to inform everyone, um, we as, a, as an agency, um, yes, we do all these things, and we try to, you know, help our, our participants, but we keep a very close relationship with other partners. So I can have a client that I'm working with and two other partners are working with that individual as well. And we all come together and we maintain this communication amongst each other just to ensure that that particular individual gets to where they need to be. So um, I run into many times that a client will come in and I'm talking to them and I will mention something that I've seen that they've, that they've done with another partner. And they're like, how do you know that? And it's like, because we're all work together because we're trying to help you. So yes, that's, that's another thing. We all work very close together um, in order to make everything, you know, uh, well for the individual. Yeah. So important. What a difference, right? Pamela. Um, <clears throat> I was just going to say, um, as far as the community partners, I mean, that's really how we build capacity, right? The capacity to reach even more clients in need, families in need. Um, partner with uh, employee partners. We have over 80 different partners, community partners, mental health partners, um, also the faith-based uh, organizations. You know, they, it's the old saying, it takes um, a village to raise a child or what have you. Well, it takes a community to uplift everyone, right? Get them up all to prosperity and on that that uh, road to self-sufficiency. So, and the only way we can do that is getting buy-in by community members, um, chambers, all those kind of good, um, good people. So, yep. 
Thank you, Pamela. And Paula, is there anything that you'd like to say before we sign off as well? Not to put you on the spot, but just in case. <laughs> no, I think that everybody kind of touched base on some really important things. Um, and I think as well, like folks having an open mind really um, and patience and understanding that a lot of things that we've talked about today, like they are influenced by so many different factors. So just getting educated on different risk factors, getting educated on different things. And um, if you are interested in helping more, reaching out and learning more, and um, it can start with an email. And I think that that's really important uh, to recognize that it can seem really daunting, but kind of like Pamela was saying, like it takes it takes a community. So if somebody is kind of interested in learning more or helping more, go volunteer, you know, um, send an email. If you're ahead of an organization, see how you can help. Um, just like how we have a lot of different problems, there are a lot of different solutions. I love that and, and kind of piggybacking piggybacking off of that to what you mentioned, Jay, as far as people just coming for a few days to to up um, to just see what it's like. I think that that could be a huge, you know, growing experience for an individual. And um, again, you know, different ways that we can resist victim blaming, that we can raise awareness and and really come together as a society to help individuals that that need it because everyone deserves um, to thrive and be safe, right? Um, so with that, I want to thank the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Pamela, Jay, and Paola for joining me today. Thank Absolutely. you. It was a pleasure. We love um, attending and sharing our mission. So, And also just, if any of your listeners are interested in coming to Upper Land for a tour, it is open. You just have to give us, um, just give us a call and then we'll schedule it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.